0: Welcome to the City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Karen, for reading the scripture. Um, at, at City on a Hill, we desire to be a multicultural church. And one of the ways that we do that is through celebrating uh, the diversity of cultures and languages that are spoken in our congregation. And so we do that through uh, scripture reading as well. Jody, thank you so much for your prayer. It was a beautiful, beautiful prayer that I think captured the heart of our, our, uh, our love for women in our church, but also um, the, the hope of motherhood, the longing of motherhood. And in fact, just, just, um, just this morning, I was reading an article in... Um, in uh, the New York Times about a woman named Linda Owens, who's 78 years old and over the last 30 years has fostered 81 infants in her home. And it's just a beautiful picture of motherhood uh, and, and bringing the most vulnerable into their home and, and our church's heart for fostering as well. We have people in our church who are fostering, who long to foster, and that is a piece of uh, that, that motherhood and that spiritual motherhood that you, that you mentioned. So thank you again so much. Um, again, uh, my name's Stephen. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here with us. I wanted to share our values with you as a church. These are unchanging things. If you've been with us for a while, you've been worshiping with us, you'll notice these don't change. We keep, we keep saying these over and over and over again, because we believe these are the things that form us. They really shape who we are. And uh, the first is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with God through what Christ did for us on the cross. So we were once separated from God because of our sin. And now through Christ who died in our place, paid for our sin, we can have a new relationship with God. And that is received through faith, through trusting Christ alone. Secondly, community is this idea of of a common unity. Um, we're united together uh, in ways that transcend our culture, ways that transcend um, our backgrounds, the ways that transcend all of these differences between us and unite us in Christ around the common confession that Jesus is Lord. And then, and then mission, we believe this good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we live our lives in a way where we declare the gospel and demonstrate uh, the gospel through how we live, looking to make our city and our world a better place. Uh, A few announcements before we dive into the text today. Um, We have a membership class coming up on Friday, May 21st. That is going to be on Zoom. So if you're interested in learning more about who we are as a church, um, or if you're interested in membership, you're not required after this class to become a member, but it is the first step in our membership process. And so if you are interested in that, please fill out the form on our website, coahforesthills.org slash events. Or if you've ever downloaded the church center app uh, if through one of our outdoor services. You can actually go to that event on that as well. And then coming up in uh, at the end of the month, we have our men's retreat, May 28th and 29th. That's also going to be on Zoom. There is some times it's still left to... Uh, to uh, uh, register for that, same, same uh, place on the website. And then our summer plans, I wanna give you guys kind of a picture of where we're going this summer. Um, we have uh, some exciting things happening. This summer, we're really prioritizing relationships. We're gonna build relationships with each other, uh, build that relational warmth that COVID has robbed from us over the last year. And so we're gonna uh, be spending a lot of time together doing fun things, getting the whole church together, um, uh, gathering for, uh, for some studies this summer as well. And so we're gonna get, send out a, a guide for you to look at Um, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, So we're looking at the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. So again, if you haven't turned there yet, as Karen said, it is toward the back of the Bible. Find Revelation and then just go to the left. If you get into 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, um, you have gone too far. Um, And so it's this little book. It may only be one and a half pages in your Bible. And so uh, there's this little book called Jude. We're going to spend the next four weeks digging into this letter together. Uh, And this letter was written by the brother of Jesus. Now, I want to take a poll real quick. Who in here is a younger sibling? Okay, so like about half the room is the younger sibling. What is like, what's one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you as the younger sibling? being compared to your older sibling, right? You've ever had to follow that older sibling into a classroom, into a school, and they're like, oh my gosh, I just, I remember your sister. She was so kind and so nice and so smart, and everybody loved her, and you're like, wow, I don't have anything to live up to. Um, And so you can imagine as a younger sibling, it is really, really difficult to be compared to your older sibling. I'm the older sibling. I knew I was better than my younger sibling. It didn't matter, but there was no chance. But younger siblings can feel like you get kind of the short end of the stick sometimes. Now, imagine that your older sibling is Jesus, who's never done anything wrong ever, and is like the nicest guy on the planet. And that's who you're constantly being compared to. You can imagine Jude is probably hearing, Jude, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You're like, because he's got God as a father. You're like it's, it's a little bit different here. Jude, in the context of this book, this is written by the brother of Jesus. How can he possibly compare to him? This book, this letter, and if you in, in the New Testament, there will be letters written to particular individuals or churches. We believe that this letter was written to an unknown church that's not said here in the text. We do believe it's a church because it says in verse 1, to those who were called. We believe this is the identity of a church written around the mid-60s. And we do believe that the author is the brother of Jesus. Now, the word Jude uh, is a was a very common name. Uh, it, sometimes it'll be translated Judas. There were two Judases in uh, the 12, in Jesus's 12 disciples. In our church right now, we have three mats. I think there's a fourth mat here right now actually, and so it was a very common name uh, in that time, but we believe that this Jude is the brother of Jesus, even though it doesn't explicitly say that he's the brother of Jesus We get a clue in the beginning of verse one where it says Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James now James, this is the James who led the Jerusalem church and was the brother of Jesus, But Jude doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus. He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant is the Greek word doulos. And the root of that word means slave or bondservant. One who has placed themselves under the lordship of another. One, one who gives complete control of their life to another. So the question here is, why wouldn't Jude just say, I'm the brother of Jesus? You feel like if you're trying to get the recipients of this letter to listen to you and take you seriously, you would say, you know what? I'm Jesus's brother. It's kind of like Julia Roberts. I'm sure her brother, Eric Roberts, used her name a couple times to get some some roles. Why wouldn't Jude say, I'm Jesus's brother? He doesn't name drop. He deflects the honor away from himself to the honor and the glory of Jesus. Not Jesus, his brother, but Jesus His Lord. And you have to understand the incredible humility with which Jude is writing this letter, because at one point you got to know this Jude was a skeptic. Jude was very, very skeptical. And he didn't believe Jesus at first. In fact, if you look at John chapter seven, verse five, Jesus' own family was kind of weirded out by him. They were like, We we don't really believe you or who you say you are, so much so that in Mark chapter three, verse twenty-one, they thought he was insane. He was being mobbed by crowds and his family was trying to get to him to drag him back inside and talk some sense into him. But something between that moment and the moment of this letter has changed Jude's life. So much so that in Acts chapter one, we see that Jude is counted among the early believers who gathered together in the upper room as they prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. Something happened and what we believe happened is that his eyes were open to the glory of God. His eyes were opened to the glory of God revealed to him through Jesus, so much so that at the end of this passage, in the song that we sang, in this doxology, Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is ascribing glory to Jesus, honor to Jesus, his physical brother that only was reserved for God alone. He is calling him God, and we have to understand that in this culture, this was all based on honor and shame. For him to deny himself in this way and to give honor and glory to Jesus, he had to see something really incredible. He had to see that it was worth more to be called the servant of Jesus than the brother of Jesus. See, when you see the glory of God, it changes everything. When you see the glory of God in Jesus, it reshapes your entire life. And it was enough for Jude to lay down his earthly identity and see his true identity in Christ. And so maybe this morning you're a lot like Jude. Maybe you're skeptical this morning. You're coming in, you have lots of questions. You're like, I don't know about Christianity. I don't know about some of the claims. Some of the stuff in the Bible seems weird. Christians maybe seem a little weird sometimes. I don't get them either. That's okay. I want to challenge you this morning during this series to openly consider not just the Bible, not just what a couple of verses say, but the very person of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to open yourself up to the possibility that this is true, to the possibility that Jesus could be this glorious, that he could be this good, and he might actually be worthy of submitting our lives to just like his own brother did? Jude starts here with a greeting, which we're gonna look at today. And it was very common in a Greek or a Roman letter to have this type of greeting. And it tells us about the type of relationship that Jesus gives us. And the type of relationship that that we get through Jesus is all about grace. So what we're gonna unpack today is the idea that God reveals his glory because he is gracious. God reveals his glory because he is gracious. And what this does is it humbles us so the first idea we're gonna to unpack today is about the idea of God's grace and his glory is the call of grace. The call of grace. We see this in verse one, to those who are called. Again, this is the standard formula that you would see in a, in a letter at, around this time. You'd have the greeting, and then you would have, uh, the, the author would tell you who he was in the greeting. He would talk about the recipient, and then he would get, tell his desire for them. So the recipients of this letter are those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Again, this is why we believe that this was written to an unknown church. But here's the thing about the Bible. We have to remember this. The book of Jude was written to a particular people in time and in history, but it was also written for us. It was written to them, but for us. And so this applies to us as well, because if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus Christ alone, you were called by God. God called you to himself. And so faith is not simply you attempting to be a better person. It's not uh, about cleaning yourself up and making yourself presentable. It's not just a list of ideas. It's that God called you out of sin. He called you out of darkness. He called you out of rebellion to himself. And that is why anybody can come. It's not about you, it's all about him and his grace. And he calls people from every walk of life, no matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter the laundry list of sins you've committed. That's why the excuse of I could never become a Christian or I could never trust Jesus because you don't know what I've done doesn't apply. Because in fact, God does know what you did and he calls you anyway. And this is a supernatural calling. God calls sinners to himself. In John chapter 6, it says that all who God calls come. Now this is the dog, we're going to go a little deeper here. This is the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election. Now some of you may hear those words and they may freak you out because you have some bad experiences with them. Some of you be like I I don't even know what you're talking about and that's okay too. There are some wrong ideas around the idea of calling or election or predestination. There's one idea that that it would mean that God is keeping willing people away. That is not it. The Bible says God receives all who will come to him. It's also a wrong idea that God would only choose good people. He's, He's choosing people who seem to meet the standard. But in fact, if you look at the Bible, God seems to call the worst of the worst as well. What we see from this is that Ephesians 2 tells us that our state before Jesus is we're dead, that we're spiritually dead. And all we want to do is we want to go after sin. We're like zombies in the walking dead. We go after what our natural desire is and we need something to make us new, something or someone to make us alive. So the calling that God gives us and, and he, uh, how he calls us is a lot like the picture of Lazarus in the New Testament that we're coming out of the tomb, we're coming out of death to new life and dead things don't do living things. Dead things only do what dead things do. We are called to life and because without Christ, we would simply follow after the destruction of our own heart, our own desires, our own will, but God makes us alive. So the calling we're receiving here is simply this, predestination, election, whatever you wanna call it, is simply that God saves sinners. God rescues sinners from death and brings them to life. Now, this doesn't negate faith. Sure, there's a tension, there's a mystery, but we respond in faith to what Christ has done for us. God makes our hearts alive to believe. And so Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So faith and God calling us are not in conflict. What this means, though, is that God loved you first. That before you ever thought about loving God, he loved you. That God moved towards you while you were still a sinner, that he planned this before the foundation of the world, and he did everything necessary to save you and bring you to himself. And what this calling does, this idea of calling or election, every time you see it in the Bible, it's not meant to scare you. It's meant to give you comfort. It's meant to give you confidence. Because once you were a slave to sin, but now you belong to Christ. So we've been called according to his purposes. We've been called to salvation, to be holy people by his grace, regardless of what we've done. We've been called to him. And what this does is when we feel really down about ourselves... When we realize, you know what, I sinned again. I messed up again. We don't have to worry that God's going to just stop loving us. God keeps loving us because he called us to himself. See, this grace gives us confidence because it's a promise, not an invitation. You notice here, all three of these words, called, beloved, and kept, they're passive verbs. What that means is that those are actions that are being done to us by God. So it is God who calls, It is God who loves. It is God who keeps. And what this means is that you are called, you are loved, and you are kept. This gives us great confidence. It gives us security. And we see it in two ways by the two words that are used to describe our calling. The words beloved and the word kept. Beloved and kept. It says here, you are beloved in the Father, in God the Father, if you were called. Beloved is simply the state of being loved. You are a loved one. God set his love upon us. He chose to love us. He's committed to loving us. And not because, he's, not because we're lovable, but because he's loving. And that's why the gospel is for anyone who will receive it, because it's not about what you bring to the table or how, how good you can be. It's simply that God chose to love sinners like you and I. But it's also a present love. It's not just that God loved us in the past, he loves us now. I remember years ago in a church, the first church I worked in full time, this old man said, you know what? He said, I told my wife I loved her the day that I married her. And I'm like, you know, I haven't been married real long, but I don't think this is how this thing works. Um, God, doesn't just love us in the past, he is presently loving us. And because he loves us, he acts in love towards us. First John 4, 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love, abides in God and God abides in him. So the state of being loved, of, of being beloved in God the Father is a state of being loved by God the Father. He called us because he loves us in order to love us. And so love defines the parameters of the relationship and love's demonstrated within the relationship. And it, it sets the terms or the limits for that type of relationship. I'm gonna love my kids in a different way than I love my friends. And the way that that love is demonstrated is different because I have a different responsibility to them. This is a, the reason that it says here that you're beloved in God, the Father, that in Christ, this calling is a call to be part of a family. It's a call to be God's kids. And he demonstrates his love to us. And that in this love, he's not letting go of those that he loved. He, he called us, we're his beloved, and he kept us for Jesus. The God who calls is the God who keeps both beloved and kept are in the perfect tense. So if you're a grammar nerd, what that means is that this is an ongoing reality. This is something that's going to keep occurring, that you're always going to be loved and you're always going to be kept. You're always going to be loved. And you're always, so in the South, we would say a phrase like keep on keeping on. Anybody ever heard that? Well, You, you, you just keep on being kept is what's happening. We, we are kept by God, He called us because he loves us, undeservedly so, and he keeps us because he called us. Now, some translations, in fact, if you have a Bible in front of you, you may see this little footnote at the bottom of your Bible. Uh, Some translations may say, uh, kept by Jesus Christ. Here it says, kept by for Jesus Christ. This is the, the struggle sometimes of translating from Greek into English is that we can't always capture the fullness of a word. We still have God's word, but it's kind of like watching uh, an, like I Love Lucy in color versus black and white. Sometimes you can't see some of the nuances. And if it were the word by, it would be true. We were we are kept because of what Christ did for us. The work of Christ is sufficient to keep us. He paid for our sin once and for all. He's interceding for us, and our hope is in one day that there will be a resurrection with him and we'll be with him forever. These are his promises. But the, the word for adds a new dynamic. So it's actually the idea of by and for both really capture this. We're saved by Christ for Christ. We're kept by Christ him and this new dynamic means not only did Jesus do the work but Jesus wants us with him he calls us to himself in a relationship where we're with him that we're experiencing the joy of salvation with Christ this is where Christianity is a little bit different than every other worldview and if you were to lay out every world and we're not saying that all of these worldviews are valid that all of them are as are, uh, will get you to heaven we, we do believe it's as, as Thinkers, we need to think through what is the most like, true and beautiful and good way that, to experience the world. And, and, and God's word, I think, is the best way to do that. But if you were to lay out every other religion and worldview side by side, they all, they all have very similar ideas that what I need to do is I need to figure out how to either achieve eternal life, like some sort of reward, but very rarely do they have God, a, a personal relationship with God in view. It's this idea that I need to do all the right things and then I'm gonna get rewarded in the next life or I can live a fulfilling life right now. Only Christianity says that you get God. Only Christianity says that we have both a God who's powerful and a God who's intimate. A God who could do something about the problems in our life that is right there with us in the midst of them. But not only do you get God, he gets you. This is why Ephesians five describes marriage like Christ in the church, that that we don't use Christ in the church to help us better understand marriage, but that marriage actually helps us better understand Christ and his church. I'm not gonna read the whole passage, but I'm gonna pull pull a few things out of this from Ephesians five. It says that Christ loved the church, and this is the imagery, the, the church is called the bride of Christ, that he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and make her clean cleansed her by the washing of the word water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That God is keeping us for himself that we might enjoy him perfectly forever without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And what he does in order to make this happen is he nourishes us and he cherishes us because he sees us as members of his own body, that we are not just kept by Christ, we are kept for Christ. Like a good husband, like the best husband, Jesus delights in us. And if we're Christ's reward, we're his reward in this, we are to give him the most glory we possibly could with our lives. When we see that he longs for us and he wants us, he desires us, that we give him maximum glory, that it should impact the way that we live. And that we get to begin to enjoy his grace. So not only do we see in this passage the call of grace, we see the comforts of grace. The second part of this greeting is Jews longing and desire for the recipients. And when he says may mercy, peace and love be multiplied, that word may is like may it be so. This is my hope and my longing for you. This tangible experience of the grace that they've received, the the benefits of this new relationship. Years ago, I got to go uh, into a suite at a a football game. And it was one of those suites where like you're sitting up above everything and it's air conditioned and there's free food. I was really excited because I like to eat. And so we go in and they're like, all the food's free. And I'm like, all of it? And they're like, yeah, so if I go back like two, three, four, they're like, yeah, just go back and get as much as you want. I feel like like LeBron in Miami, not one ring, not two rings. But like, I could go back as many times as I wanted to because I was enjoying the benefits of this privilege. We get to enjoy the comforts of being called, beloved, and kept, which are the mercy, peace, and love of God. Look at verse two, we get this, the comforts from being called by God, the benefits of his grace, and that these are to be multiplied to you. That we would see the tangible experience of these things increase in our lives. But here's the problem with multiplication. Who Here's a math person. What happens when you multiply any number by zero? It's zero. Now, somebody who's like really in a mess. well, there's this one. No, I, I think it's all zero, right? It could be a billion times zero. It could be infinity times zero. The answer is zero. You can only multiply something that has grounding. You can only multiply something that you have through the call. See, the comforts of grace can only be multiplied to you if you have a relationship with Jesus. You can only know these benefits of mercy, peace, and love if you have trusted Christ. And all of these things will be given to you. The comforts that Jude's talking about here, before he gets into the content of the letter, which we're going to unpack next week, he says, in order to contend for the faith, you need to know how glorious Jesus is. You need to know how worth it it is he is. And you need to see these things multiplied in your life in order to get into the fight of faith. It's kind of like the idea that the best. Defense is a good offense. Years ago, I watched the seven seconds or less Suns, and they were jacking the ball up from half court before they could even, before the was seven seconds left uh, coming off the clock. It's the very same thing. Our defense of the faith comes through a good offense of the faith, where we are reading God's word and we're growing in these graces. So we get to enjoy mercy, peace, love, and grow in the enjoyment of these things and the understanding of who God is and delighting to get them through Him. And this is a present reality, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We get this life now. So what are the comforts of grace? We see here first, mercy. The Old Testament um, equivalent of this would be the word that was used for God's covenant faithfulness, his undeserved favor us, or as one scholar put it, his exceptional faithfulness to his people. And the reality is, is that even if you're a Christian, you still need mercy. We often think, you know what? I'm, I believe in Jesus. I, I said a prayer. I'm good. Jesus died for me, but the reality is that Jesus died not only for your past sins, He died for your present sins and also your future sins, right? He he died for all of these things. So what this means is that right now you're still receiving mercy. You're still receiving mercy because every time we sin, we deserve it to be punished. Every time we sin, it deserves separation from God. Conrad Conrad Mabuiwe says about the love of Christ at the cross, he said, we deserve death, wrath, and hell forever. Jesus took our liability and God crushed him. Jesus drank our hell. The sin that you committed on the way here this morning needs mercy. And I'm not gonna go into what you might've said to that car that cut you off today. But that sin is enough to separate us from a holy God. And if it was not for the exceptional and enduring mercy of Christ, we would be separated from him. But what we believe as Christians is that the blood of Christ is still sufficient to pay for our sins. That if you're a Christian, when you repent, the mercy of God is applied to that sin and those sins are forgiven. And if you've not trusted Jesus for that, we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like. Talk to me after the service. I'd love to share what it looks like to see Jesus pay for your sins. Secondly, we see the peace, peace with God. Because of the mercy of God, the sin and wrath of God have been removed because he loves you and he demonstrated that at the cross, we have peace. God is no longer angry with us over our sin. He poured all of that out on Jesus. So what that means is that we can have real, increasing, tangible peace. When your soul is troubled, when you're weary and tired, when you're worried, when you feel that low-grade anxiousness in your heart, when you feel that there's this tightness in your chest, you can have real peace with God. So what does it look like for that peace to be multiplied to you? I think it means that there's an ease in your life. You're less edgy, you're, you're more at rest. It begins to affect how you treat and see others because you see how God is at peace with you. So therefore, you make peace with other people. Lastly, love. Because we are beloved, He actively loves us. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. Mercy and pardon are the foundations of one's relationship to God. Such forgiveness leads to peace with God, which in turn manifests itself in love. Because God has shown us mercy because we're at peace with Him, He Loves us. So what does it look like for love to be multiplied to you? You actually believe God loves you. That you actually believe that God loves you. Do you get that? He really loves you. There's a scene in the movie, Good Will Hunting, one of my favorite movies. There's a scene toward the end of the movie, Will has unpacked some of the abuse from his father. And Robin Williams, who plays the counselor, just looks at Will the first time and he says, it's not your fault. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know. Well, he says it a second time. He's like, it's not your fault. He's like, I know. He says it a third time and Will gets mad. He actually shoves him away. He says it a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, a seventh time until finally Will breaks down believing that it's actually not his fault. Some of us need to hear again and again and again that Jesus loves you and he died for you that Jesus promised that he would keep you and that you get to experience the realness of Jesus' love. Karl Barth, year, almost a century ago, was asked in a Q&A from a group of students to sum up Christianity, and he said this. He said, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Insert your name in there. Jesus loves Stephen. Jesus loves Natalia. Jesus loves Bree, Jesus loves all four mats here today. <laughs> Jesus loves you. You can wake up each day reminding yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself that you're still his, you're still loved and you're still kept. The comforts of grace are meant to be enjoyed so that they can be employed that we're called to extend mercy and be peacemakers and to love our neighbor. And you're never going to do that well if you don't know and grow in the comforts of grace. Look, we have a heart for justice in our city that has to be fueled by the grace of God because if it's not, we'll either never do it or we'll do it for the wrong reasons. Mercy is the catalyst for justice because it's rooted in godly compassion. We extend peace and love to others because we have known God's peace and love to us. That the inward work of the gospel always leads to the outward proclamation of the gospel. So we will love God's word and hate our sin and push back against false teaching when we are content in the faith, growing in the graces of God. When you're content in the faith, you'll be content, you will contend for the faith. Two questions as we closed. Firstly, is, have you accepted the call of grace? Have you received what Christ did for you? And, and, and we, you say growing up, it was the ABCs. It was the, you admit that you're a sinner, you believe in Jesus as Lord, and you confess your sins to him. And that's it. It's as simple as that. It's trusting what Christ did for you. And again, I'd love to talk with you after the service if you're ready to receive that. And then secondly, are you enjoying the comforts of his grace? Are you resting in what Christ did for you? Do you believe that you need mercy and you're receiving mercy for that sin you've committed a thousand times? Do you believe that God is at peace with you and loves you? And do you believe that you are deeply loved by a God who would go to the cross for you? Let's pray.